Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Daniel. We're in chapter 9 today. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and then 21 through 23. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. May God bless this reading. You may be seated. Well, good morning once again. Good to see you all. If you could, we're a little low on space, so if you notice there are some folks that maybe don't have seats, uh, if you could maybe slide to the center, that would be helpful. I don't see anybody necessarily standing at the moment, but if, uh, if you notice some latecomers, we'd be grateful if you kind of made room, because we're all friends here, right? Um, if you're new to Stonehouse, we're, we're glad you're here. Um, we're glad to see you. Uh, just a little bit about who we are. We're not a group of kind of religious elitists. We're, we're a group of messed up, ordinary people that see Jesus Christ and his work as our, as our only hope, as our life. We see what he did changing everything about the way that we look at life and the way that we look at ourselves and the way that we look at God. Uh, we also want you to know that if you're not sure kind of what you think about that or, or where you're at, maybe on the spiritual scale, to use a loose term, um, this is a place for asking questions, for wrestling. Um, the absolute last thing that we ever want you to feel uh, is afraid to ask a question or, or, or to fear being condemned in that because if we don't ask questions, um, it's, it's hard to actually believe what we say we believe unless you wrestle through it. So uh, we're here to do that alongside you um, and not stand over you and just demand that you think the way that we do. Um, a couple quick announcements uh, before we dive in. We've got some invite cards in the back uh, on that table over there. Uh, we do encourage you to, to grab some. They're just little business cards that tell people who Stonehouse Church is. Uh, tell them that we're here. We're kind of on the third floor of a semi-hidden space. So uh, those cards can be helpful just to pass out to coworkers, friends, neighbors, anybody in between. Um, we also have a Connect card back there. Um, if you're new with us or if we don't have your information, we'd, uh, we'd appreciate uh, if you filled that out so we could kind of keep you in the loop so that we can announce things like 
baptisms, which are coming up uh, in the month of March. We don't have an exact date, but if you want to get baptized, we would love to baptize you. We would also love to answer any questions that you may have about baptism. Uh, we certainly don't want anybody to, to do it just to do it, right? So we believe that baptism is an outward response to something that has happened inwardly. So uh, we're saved by faith alone, by grace, through the work of Jesus. But in response to that, we make a public proclamation through baptism. So if you have any questions, if you want to get baptized, uh, reach out to me. Uh, my name is Jason, or you can reach out to Derek, who is the typical teaching pastor um, every week. Uh, so we've been walking through a series called uh, A People Planted. And what we're doing is looking at basically the book of Daniel. Uh, we don't necessarily walk verse by verse uh, through it in this series, which we normally do. We like to go verse by verse in the Bible, uh, but this series we're, we're looking at more of uh, where Daniel's at, what his life uh, looks like, and how that can impact the way that we live our lives. Because Daniel um, was an Israelite, and the Israelites were uh, taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar. It's hard to say. It's even harder to type. Um, there's an A in there somewhere. Um, they are taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, they're living in a foreign land. It's called Babylon, and uh, the king is evil. The land is evil. The people don't think the way that Daniel and his friends think. They don't act the way that he acts. And yet, uh, Daniel is, is faithful. We see something else interesting, that God is actually the one that brought them into exile. And so, so maybe we'd think, oh my gosh, we're in, we're in this, this terrible land. These people don't think like us. They don't act like us. You know, We need to go. We need to get out of here and go to a place and build our own land that thinks the way that we do, that acts the way that we do, that likes the things that we like, etc. But that's not at all what God says. In uh, chapter 29 of Jeremiah, God says, okay, I've brought you here. You're in exile but don't leave. Take wives, take husbands, plant gardens, build houses, live here, establish yourself in this city, pray for the city, seek the welfare of the city, for in its welfare you, you will prosper too. And so that's, that's kind of our, our background, and that's, that's where we're at in the city of St. Petersburg. We're not here to, to uh, well, try to run away from every terrible thing that we see. We, we know that we don't align with culture in some ways, and in some ways we do. Uh, but Derek has kind of touched on uh, two maybe errors that we can fall into as, as the church uh, in the city. And one of them he called um, sectarian. The other he called syncretist. And the sectarian is the person that says, you know, ah, evil, immorality, let me run away from this, shun society, We'll build our own little holy box and we'll stay in there and we won't interact with other people because we'll get infected by their sin. And, and here, taken to the extreme, you have things like monasteries where you completely withdraw from culture. We see, however, that, that Daniel and his friends don't do that at all. Daniel actually works for the king. I mean, you could say he's a high-up political official. But then on the other end, we have uh, an equal and op opposite error, which says that, uh, well, Derek called it syncretism. So we don't want to be syncretist either, meaning we look exactly like culture. We do exactly what culture does all the time. We completely blend in. The, the reality is that we're called 
to live differently than the rest of the world is. We're called to display the glory of God through the way that we act. So there are things in our culture that our culture holds up, that our culture values, that our culture worships, that we say no to. Ruthless business practices for the sake of profit, um, ignoring your family for the sake of work. These are all idols in our culture that we look to and we say, no, we're going to live differently. So that's kind of our backdrop. That's where we're, we're starting from this morning. And, and the other thing that we've done in this series is sort of coupled uh, Daniel's life with William Carey's 11 Commandments of Mission. William Carey was a, uh, a British missionary in India in the 19th century, and uh, this guy labored like crazy to, to bring the gospel to Indian people, so much so that he translated the Bible into, I think, six languages. He became a professor of their language and uh, really just poured out his life, and he has kind of become uh, just a good template, for lack of a better word, and, and he wrote 11 Commandments of Mission, and these are not his ideas, these are in the Bible, but he just put them succinctly. And so this week uh, we come to commandment number 10. That commandment says this, the, the language is adapted a little bit, just FYI. It says, stay alert in prayer, wrestling with God until he exposes the empty promises of this world, opening the eyes of doubters, seekers, and skeptics to see clearly the glories of Christ. As we approach maybe seekers, doubters, or skeptics in our culture, it's important to realize that we are in a place that is utterly polarized in a lot of ways. I mean, with the advent of the Internet and social media and increased uh, political discord, we're not really set up in a place that we want to be uh, in terms of the way that we posture towards other people. Just about everywhere you look, there's a team A and a team B, and we stand as, as, as us versus them, and there's, there's sort of uh, a war kind of going on. People are different than me, therefore I sort of write them off or I caricature them, and I make it my mission to, to force them into thinking the way that I do. That's sort of our backdrop, our, our climate, and uh, Daniel will have nothing to do with that. And the way that he responds to sinners is utterly instructive to us because we need to know that we are sinners as well, dealing with other sinners. And people will think differently than us, but how do we then interact with those people? What is our response to those who differ from us? So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll look at four things in detail. Father, you are uh, a worthy king. And we come this morning simply to lift you up and to hear from you. Uh, we don't do this for, for any person. God, we do this for your glory. And what a delight it is to gather together as your people this morning in worship of you. I pray, Lord, that as we endeavor to hear your word, that we would uh, have our hearts and our minds reset. God, there are probably a lot of things that I'm going to say this morning that we've heard many times and that might seem like old news to us, uh, but I pray that our hearts may be renewed afresh with the gospel by your spirit. Uh, you know that I will say nothing worth saying unless you come and you help us 
Help us hear, soften our hearts, open our ears, uh, and may we learn from you. And may we grow in our affection for you this morning. May your word do what you have promised that it will do. We thank you, we submit to you, we love you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at four things from the text. One is the cultural problem that we face and that Daniel faced as well. Two, Daniel's response to that cultural problem. Three, the nature and posture of Daniel's prayer. And four, the motivation of Daniel's prayer. So we already talked a a little bit about Israel being in Babylonian exile. Um, But it's important to just kind of maybe understand how they got there and why they got there. Uh, There's a place in... uh, the book of Leviticus, after uh, the covenant at Mount Sinai, when Moses comes down with the, the Ten Commandments, God makes a covenant with his people, and he, he basically tells them, well, actually, we have that scripture, if you want to throw that up there, David. Uh, chapter 26, verse 14, book of Leviticus, he says, But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinance so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies and those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. So that's, that's God's promise to Israel. He's saying, look, I have set out life before you that leads to flourishing, leads to life, true life. If you walk in that, it will go well with you. And if you chase other gods, if you turn away from me, if you rebel, if you live according to the way that you think life should be rather than the way that I've laid it out for you, there will be consequences. And that's what Israel did. And it's really important that we understand that that's what we did. That is what we do. That is what not only those in the church, but also our culture does. We turn from God and we chase after other things for our satisfaction, for our life. So Israel's problem is our problem. And at the heart of it, we have a worship problem. We were created to love God to find life in him, to walk with him, to enjoy him. And what we said is, no thanks, God. These things look better. And I think I know what is better for me. And we have rejected his hand in our lives, and we have worshipped other things. This might sound a little bit to you like, well, you know, I'm not really religious, and so I don't, you know, I don't worship. You know, maybe you worship these other things, but... Dude, I just kind of live my life, you know, I'm a secular person, I don't, I don't really spend my days worshiping. And to that I say that the Bible is very clear in that we, we actually don't have a choice on whether or not we worship, we only have a choice on what we worship. Everybody worships, whether you're a religious person or not, there is something that you look to for your identity. There is something that you look to to give you meaning, to give you significance in life. There's something you put your trust in, you put your hope in, that you look to for rest. That if you say, if this, then I'm okay. If this, then I'm good. If this, then I'm thriving. And there's an author, he's actually passed away, unfortunately, but his name's David Foster Wallace, and he's actually not a Christian, but he, he nails it. 
with this quote. He, he understands um, what the Bible says about worship. Uh, says this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Our culture builds their lives on things besides Jesus. And we stand here saying, Jesus is hope and life and peace and freedom. We, in the church and outside the church, build our lives on things other than God. We turn away from him. We need to understand that there is a worship problem in our culture. The promises of the world are empty, and there are people all around you that are running to these promises, looking for life in them. Money will never give it. Relationship will never give it. Your spouse can never do it for you. No romantic relationship will ever satisfy you to the extent that you are looking to be satisfied. So, point one, we're like Israel. They've turned away from other gods. They've worshipped other things, and we do the same thing. Point two, Daniel's response to this cultural problem. What does he do? He, he's reading in the book of Jeremiah, and uh, he sees Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, and he's reminded that the exile will be for 70 years. And Daniel remembers that after... God says to the Israelites in Leviticus 26, if you chase other things, I'll send you into exile. He also says after that, if you repent, if you return to me, if you turn back to me, I will restore you. And so Daniel reads this promise from Jeremiah, and he's immediately driven to pray. He's immediately driven to pray for the Israelites because he knows that he is ultimately powerless to change the human heart. And so are we. Your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, your enemies, your acquaintances. We have a bigger problem than mere change of mind or change of behavior. And I, I unfortunately think a lot of times that the church hasn't done a great job of really peeling the onion back, so to speak. And a lot of times we attack, we attack issues with, well, just behave differently. Change your behavior, act this way, do this. I mean, it was, it was my story growing up, the youth group. It was, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this. And that ultimately culminated in me leaving the church for a little while because I was like, I, I can't follow this. And, and there's no genuine transformation. There's, there's not a relational component behind that that actually leads to true and lasting and glorious change. The purpose of, of worshiping God is, is that we would find our delight in him, not that he would be a taskmaster that we simply obey, because ultimately you'll get bitter towards God. If he's just imposing these things, behave this way, do this, do that, it will never work. It will never ultimately sustain you. We're going to look at a few scriptures that, that outline uh, what the Bible says about who we really are as people. See, because the problem of sin is not 
It's not an outward issue. It's not a behavior issue. Ultimately, it's not a moralistic issue. Scripture says a few things. If you could, I'm just going to rifle up through these. Uh, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Scripture doesn't merely say you're a bad person, you do things you shouldn't do. Scripture says that you're spiritually lifeless. We have no life within us. It also says that, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him, foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Apart from God's grace, apart from God's supernatural spirit working in people, we can't see the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We don't merely have a behavior issue. We don't, really, we don't merely have a bad behavior issue. We, we, we have a worship problem. We're dead in our sin. We don't see God. Our, our, our minds are blinded by the sin that we're born into. So, this is why Daniel prays. Because he knows that you and me cannot change the heart of a person. We cannot come to them and bring them spiritual life. That is a supernatural act of God. Now, I'm not saying that we don't talk to them and reason with them and attempt to bring the truth to them in such a way that they are able to hear it. Of course we do those things, but ultimately it doesn't matter how eloquent your argument is, you cannot change somebody's heart. So we must be a people of prayer. We must rely on God to do what it is that we cannot do. So, quick heart gauge. What's your prayer life look like? This is not me dropping the hammer in condemnation, saying, buck up and pray more. It's a sober consideration for the way that we approach our neighbors, our unbelieving family members, our acquaintances, our enemies. Do we pray for them? Something to think about, and, and I can't just stand up here and say pray more because it's, it's not going to work, and, and towards the end of the sermon here we'll have the ultimate solution but we're not there yet. And we need to be aware, lastly, that the cards are kind of stacked against us in our culture. Right? I mean, prayer is completely antithetical to the way that we do things. Everything in our culture is instantaneous. It's flashy. Right? I mean, I, we've got these glowing boxes that have infinite entertainment in our pockets. Right? I mean... Look, I'm guilty. Look, scroll. It's easy. It grabs your attention. It's, it actually lights up and makes sounds, and prayer is silent and meditative. It takes wrestling. It takes focus. It takes slowing down. We have a fast-paced culture, one that values tangible productivity and achievement and work, work, work. And prayer can often seem 
unproductive. It can feel like it's a waste of time. So we need to know what we're up against. It's not a waste of time, by the way. You knew that. Okay, so point one, we, we, we've got a worship problem, not a behavior problem. Point two, we have to respond to this problem with prayer. Point number three, let's look at the nature and posture of Daniel's prayer. The fact that we pray is is important, but it is also important how we pray, right? We, we don't want to be uh, foolish in our approach here. So let's look at let's look at Daniel verse three after he reads Jeremiah's promise, and he knows that the people of God need to turn back to him. They need to repent. He says, "Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer, and pleas for mercy with fasting." And sackcloth and ashes. What are sackcloth and ashes? That's kind of foreign to us. We don't obviously practice that, but in Daniel's culture, sackcloth and ashes were basically just an outward representation of being inwardly grieved or in turmoil or repentant. Um, so, what does Daniel do in his prayer? He lowers himself. It may be obvious, but I don't know that we're we're quick to do that. I think we're quick to ask God for things, you know. I'm having financial trouble. God help me out. I'm uh I need a new job. God help me out. Daniel understands approaching God happens properly by doing it when lowering yourself. Understanding that God owes you nothing. God owes us absolutely nothing and that he pleads Mercy and mercy alone. He doesn't say to God, I've been pretty good this week. Or look at all of these things that I have performed and done for you. Now respond to me because of my goodness. No, absolutely not. He knows that he is utterly reliant on God. And it is by mercy and mercy alone that he pleads. It's possible to be a self-righteous prayer. And that defeats the purpose entirely. There's, there's a, a prayer in, well, a parable really, in Luke 18, chapter 10. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14, where Jesus tells a parable about two types of prayers. It says this, verse 10, Two men went up in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, this is the other guy, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God does not delight in your deeds. He delights in your lowliness. And we need to understand that. So the first part of this is that Daniel comes in repentance before God. Then, and this if you have an issue with any point in my sermon, this will be the one. He takes it a step further. If 
most of us, I think, here are American, and we are highly individualistic. And every time we approach the Bible, we need to understand that we, we tend to interpret it through cultural lenses. We have perspective biases wired into us based on the way that our society functions. And this is why we as a people at Stonehouse submit to the Bible. We sit under this. It is above us. It is the authority. We don't decide how reality works. So Daniel repents, and then he also corporately repents. It's really crazy. If you look through, you see that Daniel's not merely saying, God, I need your mercy. I did this. I dropped the ball here. I'm a failure. I need you to restore me. Throughout the entire prayer, he is repenting on behalf of Israel. He is lumping himself in with their wickedness. Look, verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Verse 6, we have not listened to your service, servants. Uh, verse 7b, but to us open shame. Verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. A little further down, we have sinned against you. I mean, it goes on and on and on. We have rebelled against him because we have sinned. We have not entreated the favor of the Lord. You get the point. This is totally foreign to us. We don't, we don't do this corporate responsibility thing. In America, we say, I didn't do that. Maybe that person in that group that I was with or the person in that community did that, but I'm not responsible for that. They are. Let it be on them, right? I have my individual moral responsibility and they have theirs and we are utterly separate and there is no blurred line. The Bible disagrees and a lot of the, the world's cultures do as well they understand that corporate responsibility is a thing lest you think that this is an isolated example nehemiah chapter 1 verses 6b through 7a says this is nehemiah praying to god now i pray i now pray before you day and night for the people of israel your servants confessing the sins of the people of israel Nehemiah is confessing the sins of the people. He's not confessing his own sin only. Then he goes on and says, Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. One more biblical example, then we'll, we'll try to make the case a little clearer if, if you're not on board yet. Uh, Joshua chapter 7 the Israelites are commanded by God to bring judgment, to, to, to take Jericho, uh, the city. And they do, and they're specifically commanded not to plunder any of the property, not to take any of the things for themselves. And that is so, basically, the Israel's, Israelites don't gain from it, right? God wants to do this for his own name. He doesn't want to do it for the sake of imperialistic Israel to go in there and benefit from this people's fault. Anyways, there's a guy named Achan who plunders the property anyways. God says, don't take their stuff. What does Achan do? He takes it. He says, well, yeah, there was some gold, and I kind of stashed it in my tent. And God responds to them. He says, Israel has sinned. He doesn't say Achan. He says, Israel has sinned. And then after that, and this is we're going to have an issue with probably, he not only punishes Achan, he punishes his whole family. He commands Israel to kill him. 
Achan and his whole family are taken out because of Achan's sin. The Bible views communal responsibility as a reality. struggle a little bit to convince you of this. I mean, because we can look at the Bible and say, oh, well, it says this, therefore we accept it, right? Which is true, we should. But I found uh, Tim Keller to be rather helpful in actually showing us that there is actually a, a corporate responsibility other than just merely accepting it at face value. He says there's, there's kind of a fourfold uh, tiered approach to this. Now, the first one is that you might be in the community and know exactly what the system is doing, and you might actually be happy for it, and you might be actively doing it as well. Obviously, that's the highest form of responsibility in that equation. But secondly, you might kind of know what's happening in the system. You're not totally sure of it, and, and you don't think too much about it, but, but maybe you're in favor of it, right? You like, you like it. Maybe you're not actively contributing to it, but you don't have a problem with whatever wrong that is going on because maybe it benefits you. Uh, the third one... You know what's happening, but you don't do anything to stop it. Now we're, we're kind of getting there, probably, right? I mean, how much ill exists in our world that we are aware of that we merely don't take action on because it takes time and effort and energy. And in that, you are passively contributing to that systemic evil, right? And point four, you don't really know what's happening and you don't care, and you don't even care to try to find out about it. That's, yeah, everything's a mess. I don't want to know. I don't care. I don't want to know about the terrible things that are happening. I'm just going to bury my head in the sand, and, and they're going to do what they're going to do. That's wrong. You're contributing to, to systemic evil. You're propping that system up by burying your head in the sand. Then he goes on to, uh, to give the example of the Holocaust. He says, uh, at the top of the system, at the most responsible, you had people uh, that had set up the, de the death camps. Underneath that, you have guards and people who are in the death camps who were just following orders as they said. Underneath that, you had people in the town, civic leaders who know what was happening there, but they didn't want to know. Very often after the war, some of them committed suicide when they actually thought it was happening in the camp because they knew but they claimed they had no idea exactly, and so forth and so on. And then you go down to the citizen, the German citizen who had heard rumors but didn't want to know and didn't do anything about it and just paid their taxes and worked. What's the point of all that? Yeah, we live in a society where lots of people do lots of things that they shouldn't do, but we face a serious temptation in saying, bad, terrible, shame on them. And we are expert finger pointers. Listen to the media. I mean, here and here, boom, it's their fault. Boom, it's their fault. The church, we at Stonehouse and globally must take an utterly different approach. Because when we really consider it, how passive are we in the approach to evil, the approach to overcome evil with good, to pursue justice and righteousness, to restore the systems of brokenness that are in place in the fabric of our culture. How quick are we to act on those? And so now instead, when we look at Daniel, we see him repenting on behalf of not only himself, but Israel. We can look at fellow people in our society, unbelievers that don't know Jesus, that don't know the gospel, and we can say, 
In so many ways, I'm looking in a mirror. Their sin is my sin. I am not superior to them. I do not sit on a high horse and look down at them and say, if you got your act together, our culture and our society would be in the right place. We say, I'm a sinner, and you're failing too, and we are failing and we need God's mercy. It's an utterly different approach than what you're given on a daily basis. I mean, gosh, the Internet. Ugh. So great in so many ways, so terrible in so many others, right? I mean, how many spend their time and make it their life's work to just show the other person how wrong they are? So, at Stonehouse, that's our approach. We look out in the city and we see sin and we see failure and we see brokenness and we say, us too, us too. Let's go to Jesus together. We're not going to sit here and finger point. We're not going to sit here and self-righteously elevate ourselves above you. We are going to join you. We are going to come alongside you and your brokenness and your failure. We're going to understand that ultimately there's a worship problem at hand. Okay. Point four, uh, the motivation of Daniel's prayer. So, of course, we know we need to pray, right? That's pretty obvious, sermon on prayer. He's going to tell us to pray. Great. You knew that was coming. But I struggled a little bit because, right, we have a commandment, pray more, you know, wrestle in prayer, weep over your neighbor, um, love them, feel a genuine brokenness for them. And if all that I did up here this morning is, is stand up here and give you a commandment, it will never work. You will never actively and genuinely engage in prayer for your neighbors, for the broken people around you, for the broken systems around you. One of three things will happen if all I sit, sit up here and say, do this, do that. You'll either start strong in prayer with resolve in the beginning, right? You'll say, okay, great, I'm a little fresh in the brain. I'm going to pray. I'm going to make my mind up. After a while, that commandment is going to dim in your mind and your prayer life is going to peter out. If all that you have is, I need to do this, personal will, personal resolve, it's never going to sustain you. Or, the second possibility, your prayers will become religious checklists filled with duty, not genuineness. You will, you will wake up in the morning and you will feel guilty that you need to pray and you will do it to get God off your back. And you will not commune with Him. You will not approach Him in such a way as to have your affections changed and shaped by Him. You'll check it off a list so that you can feel better about yourself. I mean, isn't that true? So the Lord's Prayer, right, Matthew 6, is a wonderful prayer. It's scriptural. It came from Jesus. It's got to be great. How many millions of times has it probably been recited around the world in a half-hearted and genuine way, religious way? I just want to say it. Okay, I did my holy work for the day. I'm moving on. It's not the aim. It's not our goal. That's not our pursuit. Or three, the third possibility is that it will, it will actually make you bitter, bitter towards God. It will make you angry towards Him because there is a commandment imposed upon you and you will feel the weight of it and you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to carry it out perfectly. And so prayer will become a, a condemnation, a weight on your shoulders, not a freedom. So how do we do it? 
What's the solution? What is our fuel? How do we sustainably pray and love our neighbors? The answer is in verse 23b. So Daniel prays. He, he pleads for mercy. And verse 23 says, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. You see, Daniel is a great example, right? He was a, he was a pretty faithful dude. He did a lot of things right, you know. He trusted God, got thrown into a lion's den. And, and we can look to him and say, ah, be like Daniel. If we do that, we're completely missing the boat. Because Daniel was pointing way beyond himself to Jesus Christ. To the one who not only prayed for the broken and stood in front of Jerusalem in their rebellion and wept over them, but actually prayed while dying for them. He hung on a cross and he took the wrath of God that you and I deserve for exchanging the glory of God for a lie and worshiping false things. Crucified, stripped naked, hanging there saying, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He didn't merely pray for us. He died for us. So Jesus is the true intercessor. And he's your intercessor and he's my intercessor. And so when we look to him and we see how far he went, when we see that he was perfect, existed in perfect eternal joy, wanted for nothing ever. And he looked down and he saw the brokenness and he saw the failure and he saw our sin and he said, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to be forsaken so that they may never be. If you look to Jesus, if you hear this gospel, if you see it, if you massage it into your heart, if you work it into your brain over and over again, and strive for new ways to see it, you will actually begin to feel a real and genuine brokenness for your neighbor. The unbeliever will weigh heavy on your heart in a good way, and you will love them, and you will pray for them, and you will seek their ultimate good. Apart from Jesus, though, it's not possible. You will waste your time. Some quick, practical help for prayer, and then we'll close. Sometimes I struggle in prayer. I start and I just I feel the weight of my sin and I, I feel condemned and I, I know that deep down I don't have any right to be talking to God in this moment in time. Um, if that is you, I, I just want to let you know that there are promises in the Bible. <laughs> okay, Jesus is your advocate. He died for you. He died so that you might pray and you can pray with boldness. You don't have to be afraid because Jesus is your perfect advocate and he stands before the Father and if you trust in him, he says, he belongs to me. And God looks down and he sees his perfect son, not your failure. If you have a general lack of desire to pray, be honest with God about that. We're not, we're not trying to pretend here. Be honest that, hey, God, I don't want to pray right now. I have a lack of desire to pray and then ask him that he may grant you that desire for the sake of his glory. Start small. If you feel overwhelmed, you don't have to be amazing. <laughs> eloquent prayers are not really the prayers that God delights in. I mean, there's nothing wrong with an eloquent prayer if it's genuine, 
But remember, Jesus is speaking against hypocrites who want to be heard, who want to use fancy words, who want to be amazing in the way that they pray. It's not a competition. You're not trying to win a prize. You're trying to be honest with God. Start small. Be honest. Be genuine. Uh, Martin Luther gives us some very good advice, I think, particularly in our culture. And he said this 500 years ago. So it's, it's all the more pertinent to us now. He says, guard yourself carefully against those false and deluding ideas which tell you, wait a little while, I'll pray in an hour. First, I must attend to this or that. If you do that, you'll never pray. I know, I've done it, trust me. And lastly, look to Christ, look to him again and look to him some more and beg that God would melt your hearts. Remember that Jesus died for your prayerlessness. Jesus died to give you new life so that we could bring it to other people. Let's pray. Father, you're worthy. You're good. You're kind. You're long-suffering. You're patient with us. And we, apart from grace, are those people that stand in pride over other people, thinking that we have done something to merit your favor or to merit your love. And we are so prone to finger-pointing. We are so prone to self-righteousness. We are so prone to putting microscopes on other people's faults and their contribution to the ills of society. And we are so slow to look at ourselves and to see the evil that we contribute. And so, Lord, I pray that we at Stonehouse would, would have those truths embedded into our lives, into our DNAs, so to speak, that we may be people who look around us and whose hearts genuinely ache. And not only that, Lord, but that we would be a people that are prayerful, that are um, broken over the sin and led to our knees as a result of it. And in our failures and our shortcomings, may we look to the cross Uh, where we drop the ball, may we know that Jesus carried it and did what we could never do. We know that if your spirit is not involved in this process, it will never happen. And so we come in reliance and we ask boldly, help your people, be with your people, lead your people, grow your church according to your will for your glory. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We do communion every week, and that is very intentional. So we're going to do a few more songs. Communion is a time when we come together and we remember what Jesus did on our behalf. His body was broken. His blood was spilled. That's represented by broken bread over there and by juice that's in the cup. So when you are ready, feel free at any point during these next three songs to kind of get up over there and and take communion and and meditate on the fact that there are souls in this city that don't know Jesus. Remember what he did for you, that, uh, that we may be shaped and renewed in him.